Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Launched by the Academy of American Poets in April 1996, and according to their website, National Poetry Month reminds the public that poets have an integral role to play in our culture and that poetry matters. Over the years, it has become the largest literary celebration in the world with tens of millions of readers, students, K through 12, teachers, librarians, booksellers, literary events, and on and on, and of course, poets, making poetry's important place uh, in our lives, an important aspect of what we all believe and think. Today on the podcast, we are celebrating Poetry Month with two well-known Kentucky poets. I'll talk with them about their latest work and ask them to read a bit for us and converse with them about why poetry matters uh, to them and to the wider world. Linnell Edwards is author of three full-length poetry collections, Covet, The Highwayman's Wife, and The Farmer's Daughter, and the chapbook, Kings of the Rock and Roll Hot Shop. Her short fiction and book reviews have appeared in New Madrid, Connecticut Review, Cincinnati Review, and a number of other publications. Her poems have been featured on Verse Daily. She's an associate professor of English at Spalding University in Louisville, She directed and taught uh, first-year writing as well as other creative writing and literature courses. Um, And we also want to pause there to say that uh, both of our guests today are affiliated with our underwriter, Spalding University, and that just makes us smile and makes us happy. Her uh, Linnell's latest work is titled This Great Green Valley. Born in Milan, Italy, Jeremy Payton was raised in various southern states of the United States, in Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and the Dominican Republic. On his mother's side, he is of Puerto Rican descent. He completed his PhD in Spanish at Emory University and is professor of Spanish Spanish and Latin American literature at Transylvania in Lexington. He's also on the faculty at Spalding's Low Residency MFA. His classes at Transylvania include everything from learning Spanish to courses on Don Quixote, uh, Pablo Neruda, Latin American poetry, and Latin American philosophy. At Spalding, he teaches and mentors in literary translation and poetry. His uh, poems and translations have appeared in many journals and a number of anthologies. And it's a delight to have um, both of them with us on National Poetry Month. So welcome to you both. Thank you. Great to be here. Jeremy, let me just ask you, uh, before we get into uh, your work and um, how you go about um, looking at the um, and writing the poetry that you do, why does poetry matter? Poetry, I think, is, is, is um, a response of, of wonder at the world. It, um, at least for me, it's a way of of looking at the world and and trying to process and seeing the connections between things. One of the things that poetry works with is um, metaphor, 
and illusions. And this is a way of bringing two disparate things together and, and, and trying to say, these things resonate and wonder why they resonate. And, and, and poetry is, is a form of language that for me um, allows us to look at, at the way the world works and, and, and to marvel at it. Linnell, when did um, you begin to think that poetry uh, in your own writing life was something important and something that you wanted to pursue uh, in life? Um, in some ways, kind of late, actually. Um, I had a, um, I spent a long time wanting to be the lead singer for an all-girl band. And so one of the things that's always been, I think, distinct and important for me about poetry is the way that you feel it in your body. People memorize snatches of poetry. They don't memorize their favorite part from a novel. Um, a few people will memorize all of the dialogue from, say, a Monty Python movie, but um, people memorize poetry because they feel it in them. And the way that it connects us to the world is through that sound and that sensual imagery. And so that music in poetry has always been what's important to me. But for a long time, it was just for me, music. So I, I would say it was post-dissertation, post-academic writing, post-athwarted career in short story writing, and not in until I was into my 30s that I suspected maybe I should try writing some poems. And at that point, I got very serious about it and realized that it was the kind of form that held what I needed to say and how I needed to say it. A lot of times... Uh teachers of, um, of writing fiction and nonfiction, um, personal essay, always suggest uh, in the classes that I'm familiar with that you need to take a poetry class, at least uh, an introduction to, if not more than that. Why do you think uh, poetry is, is a set aside for all writers and something that many serious writers uh, take up um, to enhance and uh, create a, um, a writing in their life that they can always look back at and, and say, only because I wrote some poems or took a poetry class or two, uh, did I become a better writer? Well, to both of you, uh, Linnell, let me ask you that first. Um, well, let's see. So I had a long career teaching undergraduates, and now I'm with the graduate program at Spalding. And you know, students would come into my poetry reading classes or poetry workshop, and I always got the sense that they were doing it out of a sense of duty somehow, um, or that because it wasn't as long, this would be the literature class they could take that wouldn't require quite as much. So I think poetry sometimes has this sense for some folks before they get into contemporary poetry. It's a little bit like um, vegetables. You need some. <laughs> and um, you know, one of the, my, you know, great surprises, not surprises to me, but when I introduce students to contemporary poetry, they're always, college students, always incredibly surprised at how much they like it, uh, particularly when you give them a kind of concept book. And I've had great success teaching uh, to undergraduates, uh, Brian Turner's Here Bullet, about the war in the Middle East, and also um, uh, Patricia Smith's Blood Dazzler about Hurricane Katrina. 
they're, they're shocked at how much they like it and how powerful it is and how it speaks to them. Um, for folks who, you know, are past, um, a, you know, a need to, because their teacher says to eat all their vegetables, I think writers particularly recognize in writing and reading poems the way that there's an attention on, an attention on craft and using the right word in the right order. Um, and that, you know, if you can punctuate a poem correctly, you can punctuate anything. Um, so there's just tremendous value in having that kind of attention to every word and every line that I think sharpens uh, your skill as a writer and a reader. Jeremy, as a uh, transition to, um, to you, I will uh, tell you a story about Transylvania that in uh, when I was teaching there and teaching journalism, one of my uh, guest uh, speakers uh, was Kathleen Driscoll, who is the uh, director of the Spalding uh, Writing Program. And uh, Linnell, just like you stated, that sometimes uh, the students are a little bit um, uh, glazed over when they uh, know that next week we're going to have a poetry workshop. But at, by the end of it, under Kathleen's direction, uh, I could see it and I could read it, but I could see it in their expression and in their eyes that they really did enjoy it. It it helped their writing. And I w have always been curious about with with you, Jeremy, who teaches it all the time. Do you sometimes have uh, first years who wander in maybe not knowing uh, they want to write poetry? Um and, and what happens during that, that semester? How, how do you reach uh, young writers uh, with the poetry that you either want them to read and know or to write? As a way of answering that question, to go back to, the, to that first question you had asked Linnell in terms of when she came to poetry, um, while I had written a poem or two as an adolescent, I hadn't ever really taken it seriously, and it wasn't until it wasn't until college that I that I thought, oh, this isn't what I thought it was, <laughs> and um, and it was that encounter with with um, the poetry. I mean, modern poetry. It was the poetry of Robert Frost of Edgar Lee Masters, the poetry of. Um, Denise Levertov and, and William Carlos Williams that are, that are um, I mean, especially with the latter two, um, and even Frost, though he, he's metrical, um, finding ways to take natural speech patterns and put them into, into verse, to have verse reflect that. Um, and those are, you know those moments when you can when you can come across a poem that that says something clearly that um, that uses an economy of diction and and says something that is emotionally powerful. Um, I think brings an awakening to language and to the power of language and. Um, And in terms of getting undergraduates to enjoy poetry, now, oftentimes, to be honest, a lot of the poetry that I teach in undergraduate is actually in Spanish. 
Uh, and so um, the poems that I, you know, the poets that I'm that I'm teaching are, are poets like the the Mexican poet Rosario Castellanos, and and she's a poet from the late '60s and early '70s. And one of the things that that she does um, will oftentimes do um, have have sort of dialogue in poetry and have people speaking to each other, and it's and it's um, getting getting students to to read good poems and 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 to read them well and also i think to read poems that aren't um some sort of hermetic hermetically sealed um encoded symbolic language uh though there's a place for that but but getting people to 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 realize that um that poems that speak plain are, are are sometimes some of the most powerful poems. Is the adage uh, true in uh, poetry as it is in in um, narrative writing that the more you read and uh, the authors that you uh, may want to adapt a style from, um, uh, the better writer you'll be, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Does that also hold true with with poetry? Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, and I think um, going back even to before the Renaissance, uh, one of the modes of teaching writing, just generally writing and, and teaching eloquence was known as imitatio, so that you would, you would uh, imitate the style of, of, of a master and, and, and look at the, 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 the way that they tended to express themselves and try to use either syntax or um, descriptive language in, in ways similar. Um, and, and I, in some senses, I, I think the best way to learn, to learn poetry is, is through the process of, of imitation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's true. Anybody wanting to write anything in, in any genre, um, you just read a lot of it and internalize that. I mean, um, the thing about poetry is most people don't read poetry as a young person. You know, I, I didn't. Um, and through college, I read what came across the syllabus in a survey course, but I, I wasn't reading poetry in college either. So I had quite a lot of... Um, you know, makeup work to do as an adult, reading contemporary poetry, you know, um, things that could, you know, I say a lot about, or I have said before that there's some poets that have given me permission to write about some things in some ways. And I think that's really important too, is to find writers and poets who are doing kind of what you want to do. I think young writers tend to get distracted by the notion of originality, um, and think that oh, I mustn't read anything because, you know, I want my own voice. And then it ends up sounding remarkably like everyone else. Um, but finding writers that give you permission to, yeah, I could, I could do that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, is really, really important, I think. Well, now let's talk about um, your most recent work, mm -hmm. um, This Great Green Valley. And the uh, the descriptor that is used, which I'm sure you use too, um, which 
quite honestly, uh, is is new to me. Documentary uh, poem, mm-hmm. uh, uh, documentary persona poem, um, and the way you structured uh, your your poetry in this uh, volume that you uh, published uh, now uh, a couple of years ago, not not Correct. quite a couple of years ago. Um, but tell me about the. Uh, the, the origins of it, uh, your interest in it, uh, it, it is historical in nature. Um, uh, there's a, a, a familial tone to it, of course. Um, so talk about uh, this great Green Valley. So broadly speaking, documentary poetry might be kind of a new name for some of what's always been, which is the historical persona poem, uh, going back even to somebody like Robert Browning talking about My Last Day. Um, and certainly what Jeremy is doing in his book is very much that, as well as some other folks, even in Kentucky, that I could name, like Frank Walker. Um, the documentary piece um, adds to that historical persona, which is created out of primary documents. My research for this book was based at the Filson, which is just a marvelous state treasure, um, and just down the street from Spalding, so that was great. Um, where I could read a lot of primary sources and read secondary sources about it and read counter, you know, um, counter narratives of the same thing. Many of the events in here are very well known tales from the Western, you know, Western, from the West, which in the late 18th century was Kentucky. Um, and there are stories that are told in different places in different ways. And you begin to sense, oh, this is not just, just the facts, ma'am. There's another agenda here uh, as we tell these stories. So reading through those and then reading other kinds of primary sources to get a sense of what things were really like um, from all of that documentation comes a historical voice that is partly modern, partly historical, partly me, partly public in some ways. Um, and in the case of this book, um, great, This Great Green Valley, I've also used, um, there are a couple of poems that are found fragments that are the actual language from some of these documents, for instance, letters, where I just excerpt snatches of the language and compile it in a way that has, in a sense, the uh, whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so there's that documentation, it's like, here it is. Um, I'm working on another book right now that documents uh, the course of mental illness in a family member, and I'm using doctor's reports and um, medication labels and stuff like that in the book as a greater context for other kinds of lyric poems. Um, So broadly speaking, that's what documentary poetry seeks to do is to document at one level, it's a memorialization, memorializing things. Um, And it's sort of clear eyed about the fact that um, there's little T T truth in the facts of the matter. And there are greater capital T truths that emerge over the course of history and come to us. And in the case of this Great Green Valley, I think there's a larger narrative about what it meant for Kentucky to be settled in the way it was. Did you intend uh, when you began to make this, uh, and and is it fair to say it was a genealogical exploration uh, of your family? Kind of. The project actually, so I have to credit my younger son with this. He did a genealogy history project as his high school capstone project. And he went down to the Felsen to do research. And uh, he, his middle name is McAfee for the family. Um, And 
when I was looking at some of the things he was doing, just documenting that, and, and, and he, it was more strictly speaking genealogy, I realized this is pretty interesting stuff. And so I was kind of interested in more, learning more about the McAfee's, but not, I mean, it was interesting. It's my family. So that's interesting. Um, but then as I got into it, I realized, first of all, okay, we can't do a whole book on the McAfee's. Just no, there's not that much stuff. They're not that fabulous. And um, the other kinds of stories that were of the people who were there at the same time that are better known, Daniel Boone, Richard Henderson, Simon Kenton. Um, I thought, oh, we'll put these folks in here as well. The McAfee's were great because they're very much a blank slate. I call them sort of second tier uh, Kentucky history folks. Like everybody's heard of Daniel Boone. Anybody who had Kentucky history as a child in Kentucky knows you know, Richard Henderson, Simon Kenton, et cetera. McAfee is not so much, but they are there in the records. So there's enough information for me for me to go go with it. Jeremy, uh, we'll return to Linnell and, and ask her to maybe read um, um, a selection. And I'll ask you the same thing. But I want you to tell us um, how you came to the work, uh, your your latest work and and how you uh, looked at what needed to be done that maybe you had not done before in in your uh, uh, in all of the writing that you've done. So talk to uh, us a little bit about that. Well, um, my my dissertation was on well half of it was on was on colonial Latin America, and and in fact my my first published academic article was was on colonial Latin America and on the problems of cultural memory in, in the writing of the first European natural history of the Americas, which was written in 1526. And that author, Fernandez de Oviedo, then spent the next 30 years expanding that into, into this large, voluminous thing. Um, so on the one hand, I have, I mean, my training was was in colonial Latin American was in colonial Latin American literature, and some of the classes that I teach um, all engage uh, colonial Latin America, and um, part of the way that that right, I mean, something that's five hundred years old can be can seem rather dry and boring. And so one way to do, one way to make this more interesting is, is, is going to cultural artifacts, um, both cultural artifacts by native uh, peoples and also the cultural artifacts of, of, of the Europeans themselves. And one of those are maps. And um, 16th century maps are not, I mean, there are certainly the kinds of 16th century maps that that we tend to associate with maps, which is um, the 2D rendering of, of um, geographic and topographic space so that, that, so that we can know how to get from here to there and know what might be between here and there. Um, but that development of the map is happening itself in the 16th century also. Uh, and and a lot a lot of your maps pre really a lot of your maps pre fifteenth century were more um, symbolic representations of of space and of kingdoms and of powers and so in the sixteenth century you get this interesting mix of 
um, symbolic and geographic. So you'll have, there's a, there's a map and, and there's a poem on this in, in the collection that represents the known world as um, a trefoil, as a, as, a, as, a, as a clover leaf, a three-leafed clover. And so you have Europe, Africa, and Asia with Jerusalem in the middle um, because Jerusalem is the center of the world. But here off in the corner, you have the new world coming in as, as the fourth continent. And it's a way of, of speaking about not just this European realization that, that, that what they thought was the world isn't the world, but it also has theological resonances in that the way that, that, that pre-16th um, century Europe represented the world to itself was as one landmass divided up into three uh, continents, tying back to the story of Noah, but also tying into the idea of the triune God. And then all of a sudden you have this geographic fact undoing this nice tidy picture. And so part of the project was, was trying to, to find a way through poetry to, to wrestle with that. And as I was writing those, uh, map poems, ekphrases on, on these maps, and ekphrasis is, is the verbal description of a work of art. As I was writing these, um, the conversation about Columbus and what to do with Columbus Day and who, who was Columbus and should we celebrate Columbus Day or not became, um, I mean, and, and over the last six to seven years has become a much more of a cultural conversation. And um, so one of the things that I started doing was writing, was writing poems in the voice of these, of these various conquistadors that for those of us who, who grew up pre-1992, we still would have grown up with um, heroic narratives surrounding Columbus and surrounding Cortez and surrounding other of the European conquistadors. And we can see that heroism in the fact that the capital of this nation is known as the District of Columbia. The capital of Ohio is Columbus. The capital of South Carolina is Columbia, right? So we have, we have the name Columbus throughout, throughout the nation uh, because in the 19th century, we were trying to latch onto the cultural cachet of old Europe through Columbus. So this, this conversation is happening. And, um, and one of the things that I wanted to explore in these captain poems is the way that, that power ends up talking to others about itself, the way power explains itself. And, um, and that made me think that, that really the kinds of ways that power talks about itself 500 years ago, the way that, 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 that um, power excuses itself or excused itself 500 years ago is actually very similar to the way that power continues to talk about itself and excuse itself. So that's all that to say, 
part of this project was wanting to look at the moment of colonization of the Americas as and, and explore that as a way of understanding both the United States of, of America and then Latin America as being part of this legacy of colonialism. Inherent in your work, uh, in this work, um, as uh, I talked to, to Linnell, is a, a great amount of research. Um, I mean, this is not um, sitting down under the old oak tree and, and writing a few lines that rhyme. I mean, this for, for both of you, but, but uh, and, and just Jeremy to stay with you for a moment. Um, uh, where is even the beginning point on this? Did, did it, uh, was it the exploration by the conquistadors? Was it uh, Columbus's uh, many journeys, uh, some failures? Uh, how did you, what, what, what was your starting point? Um, probably language, to be honest. I mean, there is there, well, I mean, one of the things that you get over and over again in the colonial accounts of the col I mean, uh, right, in, in, in the conquistadors' accounts of their coming to this new world is wonder, amazement, and a failure of language. They don't have the language to describe this new nature and these new cultures. And they'll do, they do a couple of things. One, they'll talk profusely about their inability to talk about how wonderful this new world is. They'll also consistently go to um, fiction as a way of describing this, right? So we, our westernmost uh, state in the contiguous 48 is known as California. That name was given by Cortez when he sailed to the Baja, Baja California. And that name California is the name of a fictional island in the most popular um, novel of chivalry of that period. And it was, it was an island that was that was mountainous and dry and full of gold. And so he sees Baja California and, and the sort of uh, arid uh, mountains there and names it California because it reminds him of, of um, this fictional space. Mm -hmm. And so you have that throughout, throughout these, these texts. But, but you also, um, these are actual uh, uh, diaries uh, and, and records um, yes. that, that are available to, to anyone and everyone. I mean, I, how, how difficult was it to find... And did you mention to me Columbus's diary? Columbus's diary as well. Yes, that's that's uh, amazing. Well, yeah, no, and and these, um, I mean, I I read all of these in Spanish. Um, you can read these in translation as well. In fact, at the back of the book, I think they're probably mostly in Spanish. The back of the book includes a several-page bibliography of um, of sources that I that I have read over the years and that I consulted in in the writing of many of these of these poems could would you read uh, one uh, of those that that we've talked about for the last few minutes 
yeah, I will read. I will read this one. I mean, and it's it's. Uh, I'm reading it because it has a connection to uh, to Kentucky, uh, right? The first, uh, except it's a <laughs> it's a tenuous connection, right? Um, Kentucky is known as, as as being one of the Appalachian states, and 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 Appalachia uh, um, really does figure. It looms large in 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 the understanding of 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 Kentucky and who Kentucky is. Um, the name itself refers though to a uh, Muscogean tribe uh, that lived in Northwest Florida. And, and the name itself first comes into, into uh, sort of European awareness in the narratives of Cabeza de Vaca. And Cabeza de Vaca was a Spanish explorer who sailed up the coast of Florida and um, then along the southern coast of the U.S. and around Galveston had, I mean, it, it, it's a narrative called the shipwrecks of Cabeza de Vaca, had his final shipwreck and ended up walking on foot from Galveston to um, the mountains of New Mexico and then down into Mexico. And so hmm. in this story of, of his walking across uh, the Americas, um, we get the first use of the word in 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 Europe in in a European language and in European consciousness of the word Appalachia. Hmm. He refers to it as Appalachian. So, this is this is the poem. Cabeza de Vaca first sees Appalachian. Captain Miruelos swore he was wise in the ways of the waters of the Mexican coast swore a few more days of sailing the Florida way and we'd reach the land given to Narvaez and contain Cortez's growing claims. But when we first heard of Appalachian, we forgot all orders, forgot the warning not to go ashore. West and north, they pointed us. So we turned back to walk Las Palmas way hopeful we'd find the golden cities of Appalachian before the deserts of Mexico. The sight of it was beautiful, cedar and pine, oak and palmetto, walnut and laurel, a land of lagoons with houses scattered about the plain. The skin of rabbit, bear and deer stretched taut and drying in the sun. What gold we found was maize, and lions on the hunt. And one of the things that you'll see in, in maps of the 16th and even 17th century is this name Appalachian migrating through the American South and then even migrating up into what kind of looks like Ohio. That's Jeremy Payton, um, and we're going to pause here for a, a brief moment and come back and ask Linnell Edwards uh, to read uh, for us. Uh, we are celebrating National Poetry Month uh, in on this month of uh, April with two fine poets and professors um, uh, who are helping us um, celebrate this month. So uh, they both are affiliated with our underwriter, Spalding University. We're so proud and so pleased to have uh, Spalding uh, uh, with us on each of these uh, Think Humanities podcast, and we'll be back right after a word from Spalding. 
Spalding University's low-residency MFA in Creative Writing offers outstanding instruction in a supportive literary community. Study across genres. Explore the interrelatedness of the arts. Travel to Paris next summer for short-term study abroad or stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies on campus. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, and writing for TV, screen, and stage. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Linnell, uh, tell me now about um, what you're going to read. Uh, explain to me, um, kind of set it up for me, if you will. Sure, sure. So um, I've been looking through and thinking about what's going to fit best with this conversation as it unfolded. And Jeremy mentioned um, some of his poems being acrostic poems based on these maps, which um, I've seen these maps in a, another conversation with Jeremy. They're extraordinary just extraordinary maps. They, they do and they don't look like maps as we think about them. But that tradition, poetry, writing a poem uh, inspired by or prompted by a work of visual art is a, lo is a long tradition in that. Um, and so among the documents and artifacts and narratives that I found of Kentucky's pioneer history, particularly in the night as it was being canonized, in the 19th century, because that's really when the stories get set. Um, stuff that's going on at, in the late 18th century, it's anybody's guess what's gonna happen. And it's really different than what then became the stories of adventure about the Kentucky you know, uh, pioneers um, in the first part of the 19th century. So I found a set um, of prints that were made in 1850 by the artist G.W. Faisal. No reason anybody would ever have heard of him. But the series was four prints, I believe, and they were all called Heroic Deeds of Former Times. And then there was a colon and a, a description of the event. And they were all uh, prints of very famous stories from the of heroism, heroic times by the heroes of uh, the Kentucky pioneers uh, doing various things. So this one is a, was a print of, of a very famous story at the time of um, Colonel Benjamin Logan saving Harrison, one of the men, from being scalped. And the date on the event is May 30th, 1777. The painting is, uh, or the print is around 1850. The extraordinary thing about these, the series of prints is that and I've got another one in the book about uh, the women of Bryant Station saving uh, the, the fort during a siege by going to get water. Mm -hmm. Is how little the prints represent what it actually was probably like. It's like the guy has kind of a, he had, he spent a summer in Italy or something, you know, doing a grand tour and seeing museums of Italian Renaissance paintings. And he kind of adopted that style a little bit, but he's also maybe located up in the Hudson Valley. So the landscapes don't really look like Kentucky. And there's a missed, a missed sense of what, the, the native people looked like they got big, you know, Midwest, you know, Plains Indians war bonnets. And it's just weird. Um, but what it is, of course, is, again, this mythologizing in the 19th century of what happened to sort of justify a particular historic agenda. Um, so this is a crastic taken from the painting. 
My sense of what this really probably looked like comes from reading earlier primary sources about what it was like when your, your station, your little fort, was under siege. What's going on um, and what actually happened with this saving of Harrison. So heroic deeds of former times, Colonel Benjamin Logan saving Harrison from being scalped. In this depiction, no sign of the woman who won't stop screaming, the man hissing it foolishness to open the gate, no sign of milk spilled from the pails, last hope of staying the siege, no dark woods near, dense with hardwoods. Instead, Hudson Valley landscape serene. The warriors are cartoon ghouls, naked and painted, war bonnets wrong. One, a gleeful satyr, carves the scalp from a kneeling settler. Mid-frame, the mild cows stare complacent, waiting for their tenders to return. And Logan, upright, his man hefted over one shoulder and with noble disdain at the heathen chaos, strides toward the station unscathed. No sign of him creeping behind a bag of wool rolled out for cover. The station in flames, Harrison already dead. Mm. Yeah. As a... um... A bit of adventure, and um, of course, that's a very true story um, handed down. To, to both of you, how, how best would someone uh, in uh, later life begin to enjoy poetry like you do? Is it best read aloud? Is it... Uh, is it better to uh, read it silently and, and then discuss it with someone? What, how, how do you tell people that poetry can be alive? And, and as the introduction uh, said, uh, poetry matters. How, how can you um, facilitate that uh, during this month of, of Poetry Month? Um, well, I'll, I'll start with a couple of thoughts here. I mean, I do tend to run recommend specific books. And I think the kinds of books that I mentioned earlier that are what I'll kind of call concept books, which both in some ways, Jeremy Jeremy and I both have concept books. They're built around a fairly particular theme and and method. Mm -hmm. Um, The two I suggested, for instance, Brian Turner. Of course, our books are wonderful places to begin enjoying poetry for National Poetry Month here in Kentucky. Um, But books that speak to stories and contemporary events. The book about Hurricane Katrina by Patricia Smith, Blood Dazzler, Brian Turner's uh, work on um, the, his term of uh, tour of duty in um, Iraq. Um, they're written with a high degree of craft. They're definitely poems. This is not some kind of, and I don't like what I call ultra talk poems, which are really super talky poems that, no. Um, and, um, but they're highly narrative in, what I'd call plain speak, but incredibly musical. Um, And they speak to the urgencies of of right now. And uh, depending on who I'm talking to, I I might recommend either one of those or another book that I read recently, actually a student introduced me to this. Um, It's called Seed Lip and Sweet Apple. And it's the story of Mother Anne uh, who founded the Shakers. It's a gorgeous book. And it's also documentary poetry. And anybody who who has some working familiarity with Shakers is going to love this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think so I tend to make specific recommendations and I tell folks to go for, I think it's a bad idea to pick up a big anthology of poems and just try to crack it because mm-hmm. 
um, narrative poetry draws people in and I think you do get caught up in the story. Um, and that would be my suggestion. And had I time, or if you want to post something later to your website, probably Jeremy, Jeremy and I could both make recommendations about uh, books like that. I would recommend Kiki Petrosino's uh, White Blood as one. Which she's is, a um, University of Louisville professor. Mm-hmm. Um, she's actually now back in, in Virginia. Um, oh, is she really? At, at UVA, right. She taught oh, for us for a while, but she's that. back at UVA. Oh. Yeah. Uh, her book is about also her ancestry and um, her explanations of um, her, her family, but also her own genealogy and the, the, the complicated question of doing genealogy if you're of color. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, Jeremy. Well, hopefully we are, we are now moving out of um, the pandemic. Um <laughs> Fingers crossed, and we're not talking about Europe at the moment or or Hong Kong and what's happening with the uh, Omicron variant, too. Um, but, I mean, certainly one way to do that, I mean, we have, I think this is, we have a notion that poetry is, is a solitary experience and that the best way to, uh, to enjoy it is in a darkened room just by one's lonesome. Um, and so we wonder, well, you know, do we read it quietly or do we read it out loud? I mean, we do read it out loud, but poetry is, is lyric, it's song, and, um, and it's a communal act. And, and being able to, to read with other people, being able to hear other people declaim poetry is, um, is also important and it's part of it's part of that experience. I mean, we we as a species um, have for millennia sung together. We as a species have for millennia had storytellers recount stories to us. And so finding ways in which we can enjoy um, poetry communally, I think can be a way to move into um, to an enjoyment of poetry and to a realization that poetry is, while it is written, it's an oral experience that, uh, that, that really does need to be heard. Um, so among, among those places to start, this is um, maybe a little, it, it, not maybe, it is, it, it is a little older than, than some of the suggestions that that Linnell was giving, but but a, a poet that has meant a lot to me over over the years is uh, Bridget Pegine Kelly, and and her her collection song is 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 a great place to start if you like long lines that are also dense and 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 sonically rich with a lot of with a lot of imagery and metaphor, but if you are, are one who um, prefers the shorter line, the more um, impressionistic kind of kind of verse. A poet like Lee Young Lee, uh, "The City in Which I Love You," or or really any of his any of his works is a place to go. And then a realization that that. Um, you might like one kind of poetry, 
but one of the things to do is 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 off is, is to try reading something radically different um and 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 you might surprise yourself and find and find that that that, that actually um you like both someone like robert browning and someone like joy harjo and um and enjoying that variety uh, is 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 something to do as well as a way of of moving deeper into poetry. You know, um, Jeremy, you mentioned Joy Harjo, and it just occurs to me that you could do a lot worse than just looking at the last five or six poet laureates we've had in the U.S. and just reading their books. I, I mean, I don't know quite who's in charge of that, uh, but we've had some folks um, in the last five or six rounds of this that are just extraordinary, yeah. um, you know, really speak to the concerns of all people and very accessible, sometimes feels like a dirty word because it somehow suggests that you're not sufficiently hard and that's something poetry should be. But uh, I mean, there, there, you can read them and take away uh, something meaningful. Um, and so just go to the list of poet laureates and read the la- read books by the last six or seven poet laureates. Well, to both of you, um, speaking of Joy Harjo, um, as Kentucky Humanity celebrates its 50th anniversary this year, one of our our second event uh, in a series of events that we're um, conducting all across uh, the state of Kentucky will be our poetry event uh, in uh, at Northern Kentucky University in uh, uh, late April. Uh, Joy Harjo, the United States Poet Laureate, uh, will be our guest. Uh, uh, Krista Wilkinson will be in conversation with her. Uh, And uh, it is uh, free and open to the public. I don't know. um, uh, I'm going to be there, of course, Uh, not because I have to be, but I I would be there anyway. We've um, we were also uh, the host uh, for Tracy K. Smith. Uh, who was one of those uh, United States Poet Laureates uh, a, a couple of uh, poets back. Uh, she had a, a, a marvelous uh, tour of uh, rural Kentucky. She wanted to do that. Uh, we were with her one morning in New Haven, and and she read, but she wanted to talk with people. New Haven, Kentucky is, as you know, just a tiny little spot. Um, but uh, I think the effort was to make poetry more uh, accessible to all people. Uh, and for all of you who are listening to us, uh, if and I think this podcast will air before our event at uh, NKU, uh, it's on our website, kyhumanities.org. Uh, we do prefer that you get a, um, a ticket. Let us know you're going to be there just because of the size of the of the room and the, the seats that are available. Um, Linnell Edwards and Jeremy Payton, thank you so much uh, for helping us celebrate uh, National Poetry Month. Um, and we appreciate your work and the, uh, the message that you deliver, uh, as well as the, the writing that you do. So thank you for joining us on our podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.